This podcast is made possible by the good people at Bupa. Bupa is a health and care company committed to helping more than 5 million Australians live longer, healthier and happier lives. To learn more about Bupa, jump online and check them out. We've spent a lot of time in this podcast discussing ways that food can help us lead healthier, happier lives. And we've been working from the assumption that some food, healthy food, is within our reach. But what if it's just not? Food security is a major problem globally with factors such as poverty, gender, conflict and climate change all affecting access to safe and reliable food supplies for millions around the world. And Sandra, this is kind of your bread and butter, isn't it, to coin a bad pun? Your work as a doctor and public health advocate has been looking at these issues for a really long time. Yeah, I mean, I I worked for a number of years at the United Nations and a big part of my job was to analyse and track Mm. world hunger and Um, what we've seen in recent years is, in fact, after decades of declines globally of the number of people on our planet going hungry every day, that number is once again increasing. And that's largely due to to conflict and climate Mm. change. So about 830 million people, uh, a big part of the global population, continue to go without food every day. But, you know, working as a doctor here in Australia, in remote communities, um, even in regional communities and even in metropolitan Melbourne or Sydney, I saw hunger. I saw people who aren't able to access or afford good food and, and who go without on a daily basis. Mm, and So that's the thing. It's not just a problem for the developing world or even for the most disadvantaged in our society. Research is actually telling us that like 5 million Australians will have gone hungry in the past year and that's probably an underestimate of the actual mm. problem. So if Good food is linked to all these other positive things that we've been talking about, like better mental health and reduced cancer risk, better social connection and a healthier planet. Where does that leave the millions of people who are pushed out of that system, some of them permanently? Welcome to In Good Health, a podcast about the forces which push and pull us through the world, our bodies, the food we eat and the way we live. I'm Dr Sandro. And I'm Dewey Cook. There's a massive warehouse in Melbourne's inner western suburbs packed with donated food. And today, this includes a mystery root vegetable. There is a white radish or a swede or... It's my best guess. Food Bank is Australia's largest food relief organisation. They've been around since the 1930s, dealing with a problem that has persisted for decades. It's food insecurity. And here's Food Bank's Victorian CEO, Dave McNamara, to explain exactly what that means. Food insecurity is being put in the position where you may not know where your next meal is coming from. You don't have enough money to buy the food that you would like to eat uh, or that's culturally suitable to you. I think most people think of food insecurity or hunger as something that happens in third world and developing countries, but... It's certainly an issue here in Australia with one in five Australians regularly finding that they don't have food to put on the plate. Food Bank supplies food to community kitchens, to church groups and to communities hit by natural disaster like the devastating bushfires that burned around Australia this summer. 
They work with farmers, major supermarkets and food manufacturers to rescue food that's still good to eat but can't be sold for a bunch of reasons like the labels are wrong or the fruit and veg is a bit knobbly or it's too close to its expiration date to sit on the shelves for ages. In Victoria alone, that works out to be 10 million tonnes of food that would otherwise have gone into landfill. They've got school breakfast programs too, but it's distressing to Dave that after so many years of working on these issues, the problem just doesn't seem to be getting much better. The pace of the change of disadvantage in Victoria has been quite stunning when I look at it from a linear perspective over that decade. When I first started working here, disadvantage was really, or food insecurity, was really something being experienced predominantly by single parents, the unemployed and the homeless, uh, to now it's working families make up the significant proportion, over 50%, uh, and then single parents, unemployed and the homeless. So the demographics, if you like, of disadvantaged and food insecurity have rapidly changed, and that's been incredibly distressing. At the same time, we've seen, for want of a better term, our supply chain uh, of distribution, our charities, under more and more pressure financially, to be able to support those local communities. And it's this shift in demographics that makes what our next guest has to say all the more significant. Dr Sue Cleave is a public health nutrition researcher at Monash University, a job that she came to after two decades of working as a dietitian in community health. As a dietitian, she watched the demographics of who needed help changing and it prompted her to take a deeper look at just what it was like for people living on low to middle incomes to experience food insecurity. Here she is with Sandro, and after they're done, I'll introduce you to a terrific community organisation dealing with food insecurity and social isolation on a small but a deeply moving scale. Dr. Sue Cleave, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Andrew. What, what is food insecurity? Look, it's one of these tricky, has this very uh, long, if you like, definition. But if we're going to use the true definition from the FAO, and it's about food and nutrition security, which I, I think is really important, mm. is that it's about um, that people, communities, individuals, um, households have physical, social and economic access mm. to enough um, food that's going to meet their daily needs, so it needs to be nutritious, that it's done so in a safe manner as well. And and I think also too with um, in a socially acceptable means as well. Mm. And that's critical, isn't it? That it's not just you, you have maybe that food is there, but it's actually good food and you can afford it and you can access it and you can actually get it, you know, in the house and into your into your tummy because if you can't do that and you you can't actually uh, if the food's not of a good quality then you're not going to enjoy good nutrition which is that second part of what you just talked That's about. That's exactly right, Sandra. And I think if we look as well, so there's some core kind of dimensions or pillars around food security. And that's about having the availability of food. Mm. So that's about the food environment that we mm. live in, like you were saying. So whether there's uh, fresh food outlets, there's supermarkets, there's, you know, it's of quality, it's variety, it's pricing, mm. then 
the access mm. to it. So it can be there, but can you actually, do you have the financial resources to access mm. it? Can you physically get there? So things like people's mobilities, public transport, you know, what people's transport systems to get there. And there's that social aspect as well too in terms of access. Mm. And then there's finally, so if you can get to that point, then it's getting it home. And as you said, do you have the facilities to cook, to store food? Does it actually meet your cultural preferences or, you know, special dietary needs? And then there's the core kind of foundation of that, and that's that we need this to be stable over time. Mm. Um, and how I describe it, if one or more of those pillars is kind of out of kilter, then households, communities, countries are potentially going to be at risk of being mm. food insecure. And look, Australia is such a rich country mm. economically. I mean, you, you look around and you you probably think that, well, we don't have a problem with food insecurity. Mm. That's other countries, other parts of the world. Mm. But that's actually not true, is it? No, and I think one of the things about food insecurity is that quite often it is hidden. Mm. Um, and one of the things that we do know is that increase. I think, you know, if we think of that term, quite often we think of in developing countries – um, where there, you know, it's very obvious mm. around food insecurity for a whole range of reasons, but we don't necessarily think about it in context of high-income countries, especially lucky countries like Australia. Mm. Um, but we do know that it is from a population level. Uh, if we look at our statistics, there are at least, and this is over a million Australians are living in a household who have experienced some form of food insecurity. And, yeah, and, and I, that's, I find that staggering. So mm. more than a million, one in 20 almost mm. Australians mm. are living in a household mm. where, they're, where they're facing shortage or a lack of access, a lack of ability mm. to enjoy good food. Mm. And it's, you know, not being able to put food on the table. And the consequences must be enormous. Yeah, they are. And I think firstly, if we... If, before I sort of go on to the consequences, I think that that statistic around, you know, a million people, that's really, or a million people living in a household. So it's that's really just the tip of the iceberg because the experience of food insecurity, it's like this spectrum or continuum. Mm. So what we're seeing there by that statistic is right. being like that inability, they cannot put food on the table, but it is this spectrum. So it can start with this stress, anxiety, yeah. worry, concern, you know, how am I going to make ends meet this mm. week? You know, I've got these massive bills that are coming in. What's going – or there's been some kind of shock to income that's happened. And then as we progress up the continuum, there is this, uh, okay, we have to start make making kind of modifications to our normal food practices mm. is what we, we often see. So maybe perhaps buying – you know, energy dense, less nutrient kind of um, food choices because it means that food can be put on the table for that household mm. may mean people start to kind of skip meals as well. But the real end stage is what we see is that, you know, it's that hunger and is mm. that chronic kind of nature of the experience. So probably in addition to the million people living in households mm. that are experiencing food insecurity, there are many, many more that Absolutely. are facing the possibility yeah. and the stress of wondering where that next meal is going to come from. That's correct. That yeah. kind of blows my mind yeah. in Australia. Yeah, and I think it's something that we take for granted mm. and, and it's something that, you know, we all expect. It's You know, food's a basic 
basic human right mm. that we should have access to it and we should be able to put food on the table to feed our families and feed ourselves. And, and it is a human right. It is a, yeah. it is a basic human right. Yeah. Who, who in our – I remember working as a doctor, I would often see particularly um, older people coming mm. into my clinics and, and the hospital – who had been skipping food, skipping mm. meals because they simply on a pension couldn't afford mm. good food, couldn't mm. afford to eat every meal. Mm-hmm. But I also recently visited a, a community as part of my role with Vic Health down in Geelong or outside mm. of Geelong. And mm. um, I was shocked and quite, to be honest, quite disturbed when mm. um, it was described to me that there are kids living in this community just 55 minutes from where I live and work uh, who will leave school on a Friday and not eat again until mm. they get to school on Monday. Mm. How, how, how is this happening 55 minutes from where I live in Carlton, yeah. let alone in a country like Australia? Mm. It's pretty hard to fathom really when you sort of describe it certainly like that. And, and I sort of describe food insecurity as having many faces mm. of people who can be experiencing it. And and so it can be perhaps, you know, some members of our population may be at higher risk. We do know that. But it can just take one sudden change in circumstances that tip people into that experience. So it is, you know, one of the key determinants around, you know, food insecurity, we know is about the limited access to financial resources. Mm. Um, And so if there's financial stresses that are going on in households, um, then that can certainly have major ramifications. And I think, you know, yes, I understand, you know, that experience of seeing this young child who's going out with, you know, without food Mm. over that extended period of time, that's where we're seeing that really kind of extreme experience that I was Mm. talking about. Like we do know that, well, certainly from research, is that generally that is that real kind of extreme point because households will particularly really try and protect Mm. children from that experience. And so invariably it's the adults in the household, so carers, parents who may be going without food to protect the children. For me, the the idea of parents... Um, having to choose between them eating or their kids eating. And you can understand, you know, any parent wants the best for mm. their kids. Any mm. parent will do anything they need to to protect and give their kids the best life that they can. And mm. when parents are having to choose between feeding themselves or feeding their kids and kids are themselves going without food for an entire weekend, it means that that family and those parents must be really struggling as well. Exactly, and significant stress. Major community yeah. stress. Yeah, In your PhD, you talked about a tightrope, mm. um, and I think this is a really, really important concept. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, and I can't claim that that was my description because it was um, one of the people who I interviewed who described it. It was very much like a tightrope that they were walking on, mm. and so it was only took one kind of experience that they might fall off that tightrope. And for this particular household, and and I think, as I described before, is that this can be a chronic experience or it can be a cyclical kind of experience, so linked to when there's 
school fees, kinder fees coming in, or, you know, there's suddenly a big electricity bill or there's some unexpected household repair. Mm. And if households don't have the capacity to save or have something in reserve, then it does become a real kind of tipping point where Mm. they go off that tightrope. And the period of time off that tightrope can vary considerably. Mm. So it's this constant balancing act in many shapes or forms that households were describing. And you can appreciate how that can happen. I mean, we've had wage stagnation for a mm. long time, mm. increasing costs of living. Yes. We know that one in seven Victorians uh, now live at or below the poverty, poverty line. line. I mean, it, it doesn't take a lot to then, as you say, an extra phone bill, a you know, a delayed wage or a mm. few lost shifts and you're on, mm. you know, um, part-time or casual work, you mm. lose a job, you mm. lose, you become unwell, can't turn up to work for a few days and it it tips you back off that tightrope and means that you can't afford to put food, good food on the table that week for, for the whole family. That's exactly right, Sandra. And I think all those kind of scenarios that you've just described are actually real scenarios mm. that people are experiencing. Um, so hence why it is a really complex kind of issue. I mean, we describe it as a complex public health mm. issue or a wicked problem. Mm. I think quite often we can assume that people don't know how, like people don't know how to cook. People don't know how to shop. They don't know how to budget. So quite often part of our dominant response in Australia around addressing this and for a number of you know other kind of I guess, nutrition things, is let's teach people how to cook. Mm. Let's show them how to budget. I tell it's not you what, quite that simple. It's not quite that simple. And I can tell you what, mm. a lot of these people know how they run a very tight ship mm. and would do run rings around many of us. Yeah. So it's really trying to understand that and, and really look at what are those strengths and resources within. Mm. within. And, and I think um, that was something that certainly came very clear as part of um, the research that I was doing and and just this amazing resilience Mm. um, and coping strategies that, that households had. And you've been working in this area now for more than two decades. What's changed? Are things getting better or worse? What, what are you seeing? I would probably say in some respects it's getting worse. Mm. Or whether, I, I don't know, in, in some ways, yes, I think it is getting worse, but uh, but I think, like, is it becoming more visible? I, I, I really don't know. I think it's a constant challenge and for many of us, you know, mm. in public health nutrition, there'll always be work to do, mm. I think. And I think in terms of the approaches that we take, that it's not going in for a quick fix, uh, that it does take time to see the benefits of your rewards or, you know, what I'm trying mm. to say, of your, of your work. Do you think we're in denial about it? Probably, yes. As a society, we're just choosing to kind of, you know, sweep it under the carpet and pretend it doesn't exist? I think there may be an element to that. Is it because we're, we feel ashamed that we're letting so many members of our community down or do you think it's because we, we don't know or we don't care? I think... I don't think there's, well, how I see it, Sandra, is I don't think there's one clear, in my mind, I think there's a multitude of of Mm. reasons. So I think, um, yes, it it is that, um, as you were describing, that, that, you know, people don't necessarily see it um, and because it it is hidden. um, 
and or they don't want to talk about it. One of the difficulties, I think, for an issue like this, though, is that at the end of the day, food insecurity is the canary in the mine. It's the oh, it, it's the kind of litmus, not the cause. The cause is much deeper. It's mm. poverty. It's mm. inequality. Mm. It's leaving millions mm. of Australians behind mm-hmm. in society. How, how do we not get paralysed by how big this issue can become, but also not simply put a Band-Aid of, well, here's food, great, mm. the problem's solved? Mm. Mm. I think it comes back to that point, as I said before, that we need to have very much that multi-strategy approach across sectors. But ultimately, as you said, the key cause of this is centred around poverty, inadequate income uh, or inadequate financial resources. Or stability. And stability. Yeah, and stability of income. So, you know, so it does come back to things like, um, you know, if we look at, um, say, for example, our welfare system. So um, Professor Jeremy Temple from Melbourne University has done some modelling looking at using ABS data. Australian Bureau of Statistics. Yes, sorry, (laughs) Um, data. And in terms of looking at the kind of different welfare payments and when we look at who is at greater risk of being food insecure, it's students who are on student study benefits, Mm. those who are on Newstart as well, or those who are on, say, a disability services kind of um, payment, um, they are kind of like, when you look at the statistics and that modelling, they are significantly at much greater risk mm. as compared to someone who is on the age pension. Mm. There, there is a, a clear, clear kind of difference there. So things like the whole campaign around Raise the Rate, so particularly around New Start, so it brings it up mm. in terms of, you know, above the poverty line, that can make a significant difference for households or for individuals um, as as a starting point. But as I said, it's, you know, it's, it's about having a multiple strategies, but really taking that plunge and trying to address that kind of really deep-seated cause mm. is really important. But having said that, you know, we also need to look at things like, you know, the food availability. You know, we're, mm. we're a big country where, you know, we've got very remote sections, so we need to look at, the, you know, that physical access of um, our population who, who are living out there as well. Mm. So, And we're also a country that makes three times more food than we consume. Absolutely. So if a short, the shortage of food, a supply of food is not the issue. No. It's it's getting food to where it's needed. That's it's making right. sure we don't lock people out of the food system. That's correct. Because they don't have – because they live in the wrong postcode or they don't That's have an exactly income right. that allows them to That's access exactly good right. food. And it comes back to that concept that food is a human right, that, yeah. that this is not about something that you – you know, something flashy and shiny that maybe you can afford to have if you, you know, have a certain income. This is about food. This is about – having food on the table and all the things that flow on from that. I mean, good food is – we know that if kids aren't getting good food, their education will suffer, they'll get lower – you know, lower, lower educational attainment. They're going to have less opportunities across their entire life course. So this is a big, yeah, a big is. issue. Yeah, and it comes back to the point that we probably digressed from earlier on was that 
the impacts of this are far-reaching. Mm. So, yes, like from growth and development of, you know, our future generations, um, but it's also the, the what we see in terms of the impacts around physical health in mm. adults, around um, overweight and obesity, um, you know, malnutrition, so, you know, certainly missing out on, ca- you know, key nutrients mm. um, and, and links with heart disease. But it's also the, the, the other one is around implications around mental health. Yeah. And I think that's really important to think about as well because there are the direct costs. I mean, so we're talking about people who are living on the poverty line or who are experiencing financial stress or for a whole range of reasons can't access good food in a country mm. that exports mm. two times more than we consume ourselves uh, and, a, and a rich country um, and yet – what what we have to remember is that there are added costs to that then for the individual and their family because if mm. they're not accessing good food, their educational, you know, they won't do as well at school, they won't do as, as well then in work, so they won't get the same jobs. Uh, they may face uh, discrimination, they may face stigma, That's but right. also they face uh, other chronic diseases across their life That's because right. the food that they are able to access with the few dollars they have, That's they're correct. going to buy the most calories they can because right. they want to feed their kids. Yeah. And so you end up with not only educational, you know, poorer school outcomes or greater barriers to achieving at school, achieving at work, getting a raise, pulling yourself out of that cycle, but also you then face all of the health consequences, which themselves come with great cost to financial to yourself, to your family. I mean, it just traps people in a in, in a cycle of it poor does. nutrition and a cycle of inequality across mm. across our society. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So there's a word that pops up in conversation a lot around these issues, and that's dignity. Sue mentioned it, and Dave from Food Bank does too. Food is such an essential part of people's lives. So how do we ensure that everyone has good access to healthy food in a way that doesn't increase shame or stigma? Well, I checked out another organisation that's working with these very issues, but putting dignity right at their heart. The community grocer runs fresh produce markets in some of Melbourne's most socially, economically or geographically disadvantaged communities, selling fresh fruit and veg at 60% less than regular retail. They work by getting to know the people on the public housing estates where they set up shop, understanding, for example, that the mostly Vietnamese customers in Fitzroy want more fresh greens and herbs, while the Horn of Africa clients in Carlton are looking for tubers and other root veggies. Here's the founder, Russell Shields. So it's about providing exactly what the customers want, but also understanding that the communities we work with are incredibly diverse, have amazingly diverse palettes, And all we're there to do is provide safe, warm and really welcoming environment that has an absolute focus on healthy, fresh produce that gives them the choice about what they're providing to their families. Among the tower blocks of the Carlton Public Housing Estate in Inner Melbourne, sweet potatoes are on special and a spice vendor is hawking cheap nuts and turmeric. Fridays at this outpost of the community grocer are busy People come to buy fresh fruit and veg, but they also come to connect. A few local women sell traditional Somali and Eritrean food, and residents gather to gossip and eat while their kids play with toys, provided by a local artist, 
Lisa Shelton Campbell. She's been working on a long-term project to bring life to the courtyard where the market's held, encouraging people to stay a while longer, setting up tables for tea or getting volunteers to entertain the kids while their parents just take a moment together in the sun. On any kind of given Friday, when the weather's good and things are happening, there'll be like 60 to 80 women around different tables. They cook for each other. They, you know, deal with all the stuff that's happening. But it's around food, and it's been entirely around the initial premise of the market, which was to create a space of access and dignity and culturally specific foods. Her work is separate to the community grocer in a way, but it shares the same values, really. Creating a space and connecting with people is what they're both about. Here's Russell again. I think if you look at what's happening at the moment with the coronavirus and the way communities are breaking down, the way communities are fighting over resources and materials and food, I think our example shows that we live in the most incredibly diverse community, such warmth, such engagement, such opportunity for people to connect. But barriers are coming up, either through judgment, through physical barriers that people are putting up. What we need to do is go back to what's been happening for thousands of years, which is connecting people through a marketplace. And what happens from that engagement is communication and people connect. They hear different stories. They learn about different communities and that opens their eyes to uh, all these new experiences. And a lot of those experiences involve food. And food is sort of like a great leveller because we all have to eat three meals a day, seven days a week. And the variety of food out there and the variety of ways people prepare and cook and share food offers such a wonderful and warm and rich opportunity for us to um, be a better community and be more connected, particularly when times are tough. Well, this brings us almost to the end of the first season of In Good Health. Mm. It's gone, it's flashed by. <laughs> Dewey, it's been awesome to join you on this journey. And it's been so fun to meet all these incredible people um, doing amazing work to unlock the power of food for a better future, but also for a healthier population. I mean, I've learned so much along the way. What about you, I suppose? Yeah. Someone who's maybe slightly newer to <laughs> yeah, look, it's some been of this really content. really inspiring and um you know, from grassroots mm. programs and organisations to researchers who've devoted their entire lives and careers to getting these messages out there. Um, I think all of those things has been really eye-opening and speaking personally, you know, I'm my whole family now, we're trying to be more plant-based, <laughs> which is tricky when you've got little kids who yeah. don't generally like plants, but, um, you know, we're making it work for us and just trying to be more conscious and I think yeah. that um, there are so many good reasons that I hope we've covered in this series to convince people why, like it's important to, to think about these things and to do the best you can within what you can control in your life to strive for good health. Mm. And I think I certainly hope that everyone leaves listening to these episodes really positive as well because Things, things can feel overwhelming, yeah. I think, the challenges that we face as a society, but also 
trying to stay healthy in in 2020 is not easy and so uh, you know hopefully people feel a little more empowered mm. um they understand some of the complexity and and also that you know we need to do better to making sure that everyone has access to good food that everyone has access to opportunities for for a healthy life um and i suppose most of all i hope people you know listeners i hope you really more than ever see the power of the food in front of us um, and the difference that we really can make Mm. not only for ourselves but for the planet around us if we make small changes to what's on our fork see you later hey team dr sandro here for more information and advice on any of the things we've chatted about today make sure you also consult your own doctor Check out my Twitter feed at Sandro DeMeo for news and information from the world of good health. And if you've got any questions or feedback about what we've been discussing today on the podcast, use the hashtag InGoodHealth. This episode was produced by me, Dewi Cook, and mixed by Jesse Bear. <laughs>